0: Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and I think it's true that we are all slaves to our essential programming. Why else would I have eaten this entire sleeve of Oreos? It's my nature. I'm joined on this episode by Kelly Fitzpatrick. Kelly is an author, a teacher, and a community activist who is a winner of the 2016 Strange New Worlds competition. She also writes flash fiction and her essays on genre entertainment have been featured in various anthologies and on womenatwarp.com. Kelly, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: It's great to have you here. Permission to come aboard granted. Excellent. Today we'll be talking about Scorpion and Scorpion Part 2, the last episode of the third season and the first episode of the fourth season of Star Trek Voyager, respectively. Being the captain of a Federation starship isn't all drinking tea, listening to string quartets, and romancing sexy green aliens. Every Starfleet vessel is itself a piece of the Federation, a roving embassy that may be called on to act in the interest of the peoples of the United Federation of Planets, whether that act is diplomatic, economic, or defensive. General orders like the Prime Directive can guide a commander's decisions, but the galaxy is too vast for any rule set to cover every eventuality. And sometimes a captain may be forced to consider a deal with the devil. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Kelly, if you've been watching the short treks on CBS All Access.
1: I have, yes.
0: Uh, I wanted to point out that after our discussion uh, last year about schools in Trek, we finally see a classroom in Children of Mars.
1: Yes! Oh, what an episode!
0: (laughs) Which, which is very uh, traditional for (laughs) the most future classroom I believe that we've ever seen. Um, I guess I didn't look too close, but they almost—I feel like they almost had those. um, uppercase a lowercase a uppercase b lowercase b you know a thing that goes around the the ceiling of the classroom
1: yep <laughs> it the was... border like that's yeah. in every primary classroom <laughs> yes. yeah yeah i remember it looking very familiar and i remember us speaking about that that we kind of were hoping that maybe the education system as a whole would advance once we get into you know the 21st century but right
0: <laughs> but it seems like they've got uh, you know they've got holograms but it's still uh, reading and writing and arithmetic it looks like
1: Yes well as a writer you know I'm I'm thrilled to know that writing is going to survive as a pastime as a method of communication. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but what a beautiful episode.
0: Yeah, it was beautiful but it was um very short. It was like a tone poem almost. And I wonder yes. uh what why did they well you know what what was the impact they were looking for? Why did they decide to do it and set it there specifically?
1: Uh, the way I took it was that it was a setup for, you know, the events of Picard, yeah. and um, it, it did not end the way I expected. Obviously, yeah. I won't spoil yeah. it if you, if your listeners haven't seen it. Um, but it's, it's. I loved that it got into the relationship aspect of Trek. That we have these moments where. Even in the far future, we still have humans, you know, not liking each other and these two little kids can't get along, yeah. you know, for, for what really is a, a silly reason. Um, but then something larger kind of pulls the the focus back onto bigger issues. And I think that's a, that's a really good metaphor for a lot of things that happen in Trek.
0: Yeah, and it's of course it's, for anybody who's old enough, it's it's a familiar uh, sort of scenario, um, drawing off of tragedies like 9-11. But yes. I think it's interesting that we see a repetition of. I wouldn't expect people to forget, you know. Of course, never forget. But yeah. we've got a somebody who won like a million Grammys the other night, who was born after nine eleven. You know, there's a whole generation oh, wow. now of people, yeah, who that is a historical event, and so for them to frame it specifically in a scenario that I think, you know, a lot of people who are adults today found themselves in uh, watching a TV. Yeah. In in their classroom uh, alphabet border or not. um, Mm -hmm. I think that that would resonate a lot with those people.
1: Very much so. I mean, we all, those of us who are old enough to remember it all remember exactly where we were on 9-11, and I happened to be in a classroom at the time. And, But it, it was interesting. I started teaching eight years ago now, and my very first year in the classroom, my, my students, who were juniors and seniors, were just barely old enough to have remembered that yeah. event in U.S. history. So it, it's crazy how quickly history turns over.
0: Well, uh, we were already kind of talking about Picard. So did you see uh, the premiere of Star Trek Picard? Yes. Well, let's uh, transition into that, too. And I hope our listeners have seen it, or they're just going to have to fast forward through all of this. (laughs) But uh, all that leads into, uh, of course, what happens in Picard. And we've only, of course, seen one episode so far, which I think I read that the producers... Uh, consider like the first two or the first three episodes to really be like the pilot, like you would get far point, you know, like an hour or two hour long pilot. And so, yeah, I think myself and a lot of other viewers felt a little bit cheated when we see the Borg cube and then <laughs> and then the credits come up. But I'm sure that that tragedy will—it's um, already been mentioned—but I'm sure that it'll factor um, heavily into you know what we see coming up in the show.
1: Yeah, that really does feel like it's going to be a defining event, Um, and it it just is a uh, landscape-altering event within, you know, the human solar system, but then also, obviously, in the life of Captain Picard.
0: Yeah, and you get the idea that we see, you know, day-to-day or week-to-week our heroes on the Enterprise or or the station or wherever— uh, dealing with these, you know, these crazy anomalies or like wars or horrible events, but there's a homeostasis in the society where it continues, and we we've not seen, I don't think, since you know the start of the Federation back in the time of Enterprise, something that's really rocked the Federation to its core outside of maybe the, the Dominion War, which even itself yeah. only reached Earth like on one occasion. So right. Uh, you know, Star Trek's always been concerned not with the future, the twenty fourth century, but with the century in which it's airing, yes. and it, Trek's always reflected the modern distrust of governments and institutions. I think in that, mm-hmm. whenever we see the leadership of Starfleet or the Federation, it's always at odds with the noble aspirations of what our show's main characters are doing. Uh, yeah. And in the world of Picard, as we've seen it after one episode, it seems to be taking a hard turn into those ideas with Starfleet, you know, abandoning the Romulan rescue and banning synthetic research. And we've got Fox News grilling Picard in his living room.
2: Yes.
0: <laughs> I, ha- I have to wonder, like, is this are, are we setting up a world in the 25th century where the bad finally won?
1: You know, it really feels like that. Although I think you're, you know, you're automatically setting yourself up as a bad guy if you position yourself on the opposite uh, end from Picard. But, yeah, um, right. <laughs> you know, it, it really was um, distressing, you know, for me to think about a Starfleet that would turn its back on a humanitarian uh, endeavor that is as extensive as, um, you know, the, the Romulan refugee crisis. And for that to be extensive enough, um for for Picard to leave um i'm i'm really interested in personhood rights specifically oh, yeah. and so i've always been fascinated by any star trek episodes that talk about the life uh the the life and sentient rights of you know artificial life forms yeah um in the in the universe and so to hear that we, it looks like that the universe kind of went backwards <laughs> as far yeah,
2: as it certainly right does.
1: for those beings here. That was very distressing to kind of see them in that lab and see them looking backwards. You know, sometimes history does kind of go backwards.
0: It's something that comes up a lot on this show, um, just the, the question of why... They never felt it was really necessary in Star Trek up to this point to really explore like the rights of AI, uh, artificial life. Uh, of course, you know, we've got the measure of a man and that's like about it. <laughs> and I think yeah. we, we kind of theorized that Gene Roddenberry is really interested in telling stories about about people and about humanity. And so why would we bother telling stories about robots? But of course, we're dealing with that in the 21st century right now. And I think it's really telling that. They want to make this show now take a hard turn into, hey, you want robots and AI, let's do it. And their touchstone is the measure of man.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I think TNG leaned into that really hard with developing the data character. You yeah. know, I don't think anybody can argue that he's not a not a person. You yeah. know, um, and uh, another episode that I really love that gets at this, or or at least approaches it, is author author
2: sure. in
1: in Voyager because um, when the EMH decides he wants to author his own content, then suddenly it becomes an issue of well, can a <laughs> can an artificial life form have intellectual property rights?
0: Yeah, but and, it's almost more of like a legal uh, drama, yeah. though. because <laughs> they, yeah. And we'll talk about this and the way that they end up having to tell stories in Voyager uh, later in this episode, but since they're stuck in the Delta Quadrant, they have <laughs> to save that little bit for the end where we see all the working on the railroad, uh, <laughs> doctors like working in the mine or whatever. Uh, but the rest of the episode is just like, well, does he have publishing rights for this? Yeah.
1: Right, and so you're, I, th- I think you're right that they never really faced it head on, and so to see that really come to the forefront in this in this premiere it excites me a lot.
0: Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. I think going along those lines of like what's going on in the future, uh, I've seen a lot of people or I've read a lot of comments online, people being critical of the show in its depiction of like this not-so-perfect future, um, (laughs) which, first of all, just everyone online shut up about everything forever. (laughs) But also, Trek has always wanted to explore our current political climate, and it's always tried to do that by putting the problems of society in the societies that uh, the Federation comes in contact with. But maybe it's time to turn it around. I mean, let's face it, like, Maybe we should be doing that introspection and that looking in. Um, Discovery is also doing something. Well, nobody knows, but they've taken the ship to the far future, where it looks like maybe the Federation has uh, has gone away or has, or has changed greatly. But the world of the twenty fifth century in Picard doesn't look that bad. I mean, did you see Future Boston? It looks great.
1: Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah, <laughs> the architecture and like a lot of, <laughs> lot of great stuff going on there.
0: Yeah, and uh, Picard's got a pit bull, and nobody seems to have a problem with that in the show. Yeah. So.
1: It's so cute. And vineyards still exist. <laughs> for you some know? reason, yeah. And yeah.
0: <laughs> but we do see, I always wondered, uh, you know, with the economy of the Federation, like, who picks the grapes? And now yeah. we see that, no, we've got automated uh, uh, watering <laughs> things. And so, yeah. <laughs> well, we're finally, I, I've been asking these questions for five years on this show. Yeah. And we're, finally, we're finally getting our answers. So I'm happy <laughs> about that. Well, we do a live show every Thursday night where we talk about that week's episode of Star Trek Picard or Discovery. So if listeners are interested, they can find out more about our show, uh, Discovery, at EISD Pod on Twitter or by going to enterprisingindividuals.com. Uh, the last time that you were on the show, we talked about the state of education in the Star Trek universe. And uh, we also talked about the after-school writing group that you founded for teens in your community. And I'm curious, I don't remember exactly uh, if we talked about this specifically, but what kinds of writing do you see young people? people gravitating to Uh, do you have any budding sci-fi authors in your charge
1: very many of them. Really? Yes. Yes. So my my writing group is pretty varied. There's a variety of different types of writing going on. So I have uh, a young woman who is writing a horror novel. I have several young people who are uh, writing manga. So they're like drawing their own comics and illustrating them. And they're really <laughs> gorgeous. Sure. Like they're really great. Um, I have a couple uh, guys who write D and D campaigns while they're there. Oh, okay. Um, uh, I have one uh, one girl who is writing a sci-fi story. Um, I've got another person who does like online game writing. Um, one person writes uh, DC fan fiction stuff, you oh, know. Wow. So it's just kind of all over the place. Um, but they know they know me, and they know you know that my heart lives in sci-fi, and so yeah. <laughs> it's it's fun when they when they kind of you know gravitate that direction. Um, but yeah,
0: that's really great. I just. I feel like a proud parent, even though I'm not a parent, because (laughs) that's all the stuff that I was doing when I was their age, and if I had joined a writing group like the one that you started, I imagine that we would be writing, you know, I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree or something like that, but the fact that they get to express themselves in all these ways that are so valid and are are getting validation now is, is really great.
1: Yeah, it's truly, it's my favorite part of, of my week, and I have gotten feedback from them that it's very valuable for them, so I'm very lucky to get to help them with that.
0: Well That's really great. We talked last time as well about your work writing for Modiphius on their Star Trek Adventures RPG, and I know that you can't be totally forthcoming on what you're working on specifically, but can you tell us if anything that you've written has been included in any of the uh, most recent releases, like the uh, Gamma Quadrant source book?
1: Um, my stuff is not in that book. It will be, um, in an upcoming book from Modiphius that should be out this year. And then I'm working on some additional content for a, for a future project down the line. They have so many projects in the air. Like you have no idea. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was looking at their uh, online store today and I was like, wow, when did that come out? No, they got this, they got this.
1: Oh, they are juggernauts of content. And I mean, Jim Johnson does an amazing job as an editor, like coordinating everything. So it's it's a great uh, company to work for.
0: Well, I'm still trying to get a group together to run a Star Trek Adventures game. So anyone within the sound of my voice, contact me on <laughs> Twitter or at uh, EISDpod at gmail.com. We can play online, it's not a problem. Well, why'd you choose this specific episode or these episodes, Scorpion and Scorpion Part 2, to discuss today? <laughs>
1: Well, Voyager is my favorite iteration of Trek sure. uh, It was the first one that I sort of grew up watching and I just love Captain Janeway as a character but she's kind of also like a role model and I really love these episodes because we get to see her kind of really pushed to the edge where she has to make some decisions that I think are kind of on the fringe of Federation ethics, Yeah, like you know in, in previous series in, in in Next Gen, the Borg are kind of the ultimate nemesis. You know, they they assimilated Captain Picard. They're, they're evil, right? right? And in this episode, we get to see her make a choice to actually ally with the Borg because there's a greater threat, yeah. you know, that faces both of them in, in Species 8472. So I love the that kind of ethical decision that they have to make. And obviously, Commander Chakotay disagrees. And so we get to see that great... Uh, tension and friction between those two as they go back and forth on the process of working out, how do we make the correct uh, diplomatic decision that is both best for our crew and our safety, but also, you know, ethically sound?
0: Yeah, I don't know if, I'm not sure that I totally like uh, Cuddly uh, Janeway and Chakotay or Jane Coteway or whatever their couple name is. (laughs) And I don't, I get uncomfortable when I think about them clashing as well. Um, Yeah. And of course, I mean, you couldn't do either one of those for seven years. But I feel like we were just getting to the point where, because there are some episodes before this where they are weirdly intimate, like with each other. And then they want to make that they really draw a line here that's supposed to set up this sort of slow boiling um, division between them uh, that will boil over in, um, I can't remember the name of the episode, but uh, there's a season six episode, you know, where he almost mutinies. And I I just, I I feel like if I looked back, it would be hard to sort of track exactly how their relationship develops. But, you know, it's, I'm sure it's a continually developing one. And it's much more than we ever got with number one, who would just do whatever Picard said.
1: Yeah, it's it's complex. And I think part of that was because, you know, uh, Chicote never signed up to be on Voyager <laughs> true, in yeah. the Delta Quadrant. You know, he just was a Maquis who got stranded there. And so they had to just kind of make it work. And so I think it's pretty uh, impressive that they were able to work together as well as they were, you know, all things considered. Yeah. Um, but I love the way that that. Uh, the duality of them kind of, you know, fighting against each other. He wants to stay and be safe and she wants to push forward. Uh, it, it mirrors the different fighting ideologies that are in the the larger episode altogether of, you know, if we if we fight each other, we we all lose kind of thing.
0: Yeah, for sure. Voyager comes at a time in Trek where they've already successfully revived Trek as a property with TNG, and then they took the difficult steps of doing something different with it and succeeding with DS9, mm-hmm. and then Voyager comes, and there's a lot of pressure on it. You know, it's the flagship yep. show of their new network, UPN, Uh, It's got the first female captain um, and its mandate is kind of to bring Trek back to exploring space. And yet it's got this intense premise where the ship is stranded far from home. And it's you know, it's also being somewhat overshadowed, I think, by the TNG films like they haven't really given it up just yet. You know, they're Mm -hmm. they're still we're still getting the adventures of Picard's crew that we want to see on the big screen. And so you've got to show that. Under writers like Braga and Taylor and Manoski and Fuller, it's really trying to push the envelope of Trek storytelling, but there's also pressure to make it friendly to new viewers. And the show also seems to get just existing so late in the franchise as it does. It gets all these hand-me-down elements, you know, like the Borg or like, I've just, I've been doing a rewatch and I've, uh, I'm in the middle of like season, or I just got through the middle of season three and it's like, Here's another TNG plot, TNG plot, TNG plot, <laughs> like a lot of recycled storylines, or just literally adding TNG characters to the show in later seasons. And yet, like when it's at its best, I think Voyager really achieves some unique storytelling that edgy has become a <laughs> a word that you know is not positive anymore, but like is really, I guess, on the edge of what you would ch- generally see on Trek. Um, and, yes. and then you've got a character like Seven of Nine who could have just been a Borg and another emotionless character like Spock or Tuvok or just eye candy on the show. But I think the show really stands out in moments like these episodes, uh, Scorpion, Scorpion part two, um, even when revisiting already used story elements.
1: Absolutely. I I really um, agree that Voyager has, you know, it has the cliche like, oh, another transporter accident, you know.
2: Another it shuttle crash, a, yeah. <laughs> another
1: shuttle craft, you know, crashes on an unknown planet. But um, the the moments when you have these characters dealing with these nuanced things. That, that come out of being stranded 70 years from home. Mm-hmm. you know, I think that's that's a place that you don't get to anywhere else uh, in Trek where it really is you're out here completely by yourself. Um, since I, I watched Voyager first, there was always that, that looming thing of like we might not make it out here we sure. might not get home we might all die in the process and there really was nobody around them other than the the allies that they forged when they were out there and then I went and started watching other you know Trek shows and I'm like wait a minute there's like a starbase, like this guy's you know for all you know, <laughs> these people and they got problems you know <laughs> so it, it seemed like almost too easy you know but obviously then there's there's bigger conflicts and, and things that happen but Um, I really love the kind of scrappiness that they, they have to go through uh, and they have to lean on each other. It really is the, the crew that I think feels the most like a family. Yeah. And that's one of the plot lines that comes in with Seven of Nine. I think we really get to see them decide consciously. Janeway says at the end of this episode, like, we're responsible for whatever happens to her now because we pulled the plug. So yeah. so it's one of us now. And they start out with the word friend, but I really think it does end up being, you know, she's she's part of their their family, for lack of a better word.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the Enterprise's biggest problem was, oh, no, look, Sana, Troy's coming back. Everybody hide. <laughs>
2: Right, yeah. Yeah.
0: Like, seriously. Well, we are talking the Voyager episodes Scorpion and Scorpion Part 2. Scorpion first aired on May 21st, 1997, and part two aired on September 3rd, 1997. So, of course, that summer break there. The first part was written by Brandon Braga and Joe Minoski, as was the second part written by them. Uh, the first episode was directed by David Livingston. The second was directed by Vinrick Colby. We've talked about Livingston and Colby, who are both veteran Trek directors on the show before. Uh, and, of course, we've talked about Brandon Braga. But I don't think we've said much about Joe Minoski. Um Joe Minoski got his start with Trek as an executive story editor during TNG's fourth season and he went on to be a co-producer on TNG, as well as an executive producer on Voyager. And he was a co-executive producer on Discovery the first season as well. And he's written or co-written 57 scripts uh, between his work on TNG, DS9, and Voyager. And he also wrote an uh, episode of Discovery as well. He wrote 36 scripts for Voyager, so it's it's a lot. And he began his career as a journalist and a science reporter for NPR. And he's currently a co-producer and writer on The Orville. And he graduated from Pomona College in California, where apparently the number 47 has a special significance. So he's the one responsible for inserting the number 47 into many of his scripts, a practice that has spread to other writers' scripts in the Star Trek franchise. And I'm wrecking my brain. I can't think of anything, but I'm sure it's already made its way into discovery.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's not rain a bell, but that's really hilarious. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Uh the star date for the first episode is 50984.3. And the star date for the second episode is 51003.7. And this is a two-parter, so a little extra latitude. Your assignment, Kelly, if you can, is to give us a 50-word synopsis of Scorpion and Scorpion Part 2.
1: Oh, let's see. Alright. As Voyager approaches Borg Occupied Space. The crew attempts to devise a plan for traversing the space safely and to do so, they must ally with the Borg to fight Species 8472, a formidable enemy that threatens both of them. But alliances go awry and Voyager ends up with a new crew member.
0: That's right. Uh, and pretty soon one less too (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) gotta balance it out a little but yeah that's later uh here are some interesting facts from the memory banks about this episode the episode title of course comes from the i believe aesop fable about the scorpion and the frog uh, a fox in chakotay's retelling and i had never heard this uh fable growing up um it's It makes a lot of sense, uh, and I think it works well, uh, both with Oreos and this episode. But uh, I had been exposed to it uh, for the first time uh, seeing the movie The Crying Game, the Neil Jordan movie. I don't know if you've ever seen that one, but it plays uh, an important part uh, in sort of character in that film. Uh, This episode and a lot of the major developments of Voyager season four and uh, on to season seven were the result of... um, Big ideas uh, by Brandon Braga and the writing staff. Uh, the Year of Hell two-parter, which would appear later in the show's fourth season, was the original pick to end the show's third season and start its fourth. However, the impending cast changes that were coming up in the show led to them pushing that story idea back. I don't know if you remember, um, I think it's the episode where Kess is moving back through time, but they actually set up the Krenum and The Year of Hell um, before we even reach it um, and later in the fourth season.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Which is, I totally forgot about that when I was rewatching it recently. I'm like, what are they talking about? They haven't, <laughs> they haven't run into Kurtwood Smith yet. Well, But it's time travel, so I guess it doesn't matter. And, of course, it's a total paradox because she's not even on the ship anymore, so it doesn't make any sense. Uh, After delaying Year of Hell, Braga and Manowski began working on another story idea involving doppelgangers of the Voyager crew uh, beating them home to Earth. Uh, But that idea was eventually scrapped, and the doppelganger idea was recycled for the later Silver Blood episodes. Having the Borg appear in Voyager seems like a no-brainer since they originate from the Delta Quadrant, but apparently the writers of Voyager didn't have any major plans for the Borg outside of seeing the liberated Borg in the third season episode, Unity. Uh, The Borg featured heavily, of course, in the motion picture First Contact, which came out a year before this episode premiered, and Braga felt that the time would be right to see the Borg become a threat in Voyager. Um, in fact, the Borg costumes in this episode were recycled from first contact as were as well as uh, set pieces like the Borg corridors and the alcoves. and actually the background uh, in the Borg Cube bridge shot is recycled from the film as well. Uh, in, re- in writing the script, Braga included an idea that had been considered for Unity but scrapped the image of a graveyard of Borg cubes. Uh, in fact, the large scale set pieces in the episode, like the Borg graveyard, uh, the fleet of cubes fleeing the bio ships, and of course the summary destruction of the Borg cubes that opened the episode, were all part of a concerted effort by the writing staff to up the wow factor in the show's fourth season. And speaking of the teaser of the first episode, where the Borg cubes are destroyed, it clocks in as the second shortest teaser in the franchise at just under 20 seconds. Uh, The franchise's shortest teaser is from the Enterprise episode Impulse, which features a deranged T'Pol coming into sickbay and being restrained, and it's just over 18 seconds. And I feel like the teaser is a lost art in television. I feel like... uh, I mean, I guess I don't watch a lot of TV. I don't know what they're doing on NCIS. But as far as sci-fi TV goes, the way that shows become so serial now and so like episode to episode, I feel like giving you that little, oh, my God, it's 15 Borg cubes. You don't don't (laughs) see that so much anymore.
1: Right. Especially since I think the media is shifting to streaming, like Netflix has a little button where you can, you know, skip the intro and and there's there's no commercials. And so like, there isn't necessarily that wait time where you you have to sit with whatever they dumped on you in the teaser. But I really agree. I think it's, I think it's an art of what do you give them as a tiny little nugget in the beginning to foreshadow and hint at the conflict that's coming in the episode without giving too much away.
0: Yeah. I I like that Um, a lot of streaming shows like even Discovery uh, will just roll into the story and then like 10 minutes in what would have been the first act break, you know, in a in an old style Trek show is like, oh, yeah, play the play the theme. And I'll right, uh, yeah. <laughs> show all 37 uh, producers, and then yeah, then we'll get back to the show.
1: I didn't time it, but the I, I feel like the Picard um, opening scene, opening credits was very far into the episode, so far. much so that it, it kind of surprised me. I'm like, oh wait, this is this is the intro. Like. But it was it was a beautiful intro, so it was worth waiting for.
0: Yeah, plus they want to do that thing where it you know it opens with a dream sequence. Again, we're spoiling things, I guess, but we're, it's just the opening. Uh, it opens with a dream sequence, uh, which is of course uh, uh, coming in from the end of TNG with the poker game, yeah. and so and then you can't leave us with that, so you gotta show him waking up, and then we gotta meet his dog and his housekeeper, <laughs> and so yeah, now we're eight minutes in, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, This episode is the third Trek finale where the Borg appear, uh, having previously been in The Best of Both Worlds, uh, the third season TNG, and Descent, the sixth season finale of TNG. Uh, This is the first episode in which Borg nanoprobes are mentioned, although Borg nanotechnology was referenced in The Best of Both Worlds Part 2. This is Jennifer Lean's last episode as a regular cast member. She is billed as also starring Jennifer Lean in Scorpion Part two. And there were rumors that both Kess and Harry Kim's characters were up for the chopping block come the fourth season and the addition of Seven of Nine. And, you know, the fact that Harry was near death uh, at the end of the uh, first episode seemed to suggest which way that was going to go. However, it was Jennifer Leans cast that ended up leaving the show. And I don't know, it may or may not have something to do with it. But uh, Garrett Wang was featured as one of People magazine's 50 Sexiest People that year. So you can draw <laughs> your own conclusions, I guess. Nice. Uh, also from Scorpion part one onward, the main characters uh, no longer have ranks in the opening credits. Only Captain Janeway does.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't noticed that before.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, the old like starring DeForest Kelly as Dr. McCoy or whatever. Yeah, they've taken that out. Uh, incidentally, this is Kate Mulgrew's favorite episode of Voyager. Uh, she really? Said Scorpionist? On one occasion, she said that, yeah. Oh,
1: that's cool.
0: Uh, Let's talk about the guest stars in the episodes. Uh, Of course, Jonathan Rice Davies appears in the role of Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, The Welsh Rice Davies has had a long career in film and TV, very recognizable. Uh, He's played Gimli and Treebeard and Lord of the Rings, Sala in the Indiana Jones films, and Professor Maximilian Arturo in Sliders, which I'm old enough to remember. I don't know about uh, any other listeners, but uh, (laughs) Sliders got me through college. Uh, He was offered the role by the producers with no audition, and he's a lifelong Star Trek fan, so that suited him just fine. The character Da Vinci was added to the story at Kate Mulgrew's request as the writers were looking for a character that Janeway could confide in and bounce ideas off of. He would appear again in the fourth season episode Concerning Flight, and his workshop would be seen several more times in the fourth season. Janeway says at one point that, quote, someone once said, all invention is but an extension of the body of man, end quote. That's a quote. Quote from Marshall McLuhan, a philosopher in media theory. He's also known for the expression "The medium is the message." Uh, No idea what he thought about Star Trek, although (laughs) I would have loved to get his opinion on holodecks.
1: I'm really glad they went with Leonardo as the character. I feel like um, that character's interplay with Janeway is excellent. Yes, and it really like embodies her spirit of exploration, and (laughs) you know. I love seeing her go in there and just like, I want to get my hands in clay. You know? <laughs> like,
0: yeah, I know. Stick a nose on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love to, I mean, she's, of course, uh, was a science officer before and she's, you know, an accomplished like scientist. But I love the fact that she embodies, for me, the sort of dilettante hero, like a Victorian literature, like somebody who... Like you said, like wants to explore, wants to know everything, isn't necessarily like an expert at everything, but is always kind of searching for more knowledge, which is a perfect person to be in Starfleet.
1: It really is. Yes.
0: Uh, Species 8472 makes their debut in in this episode in Scorpion. Uh, They were originally called Species 84729, but they dropped the nine. Uh, Or of course, they're called the Undine, I believe, in Star Trek Online. And they were the producers of the show were inspired by the success of the previous episode Macrocosm, in which a lot of digital effects were used. Uh, this is the episode that's kind of like Alien," where Janeway's running around the ship you know with a gun
2: mm-hmm.
0: and a tank top uh, trying to kill these giant uh, <laughs> giant viruses. Yeah. and so they needed to come up with something that could scare even the Borg. Um, and uh, Brandon Braga is credited with coming up with the idea. And, of course, a lot of people helped. Um, Dan Curry, uh, who is a uh, effects person on the show, uh, really pushed the idea that they would be made et- entirely of CGI.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: they didn't want a guy in a costume. And he um, based his design on Triffids from Day of the Triffids, um, them having three legs. Uh, they also wanted to really um, push the idea that you would know that there couldn't be anybody in there. So they had, you know, the articulated legs and like the mm-hmm. extra limb. And they have those weird, like if you took the skin off of somebody's neck, but they had the tendons and stuff still. <laughs> yeah. 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 And they have extra extra joints and stuff. Yeah. Uh, concept artist Steve Berg also influenced the design a lot. They were originally supposed to be 14 feet tall, but he brought that down to a more uh, reasonable nine or 10 feet. And uh, CGI effects director Ron Thornton suggested that they have no mouth. He thought that if they had... Big teeth, like the Tyrannosaurus Rex teeth, they would look a little silly, but having no mouth made them look scarier. And also you could... Ominous. Yeah, you could imagine that, you know, what what are they thinking? Like they're very sinister. Yeah. And CGI animator John Tesco was tasked with bringing them to digital life. In fact, um, many of the VFX shots in the episode... Uh, are CGI or totally composite shots, uh, including the Borg corpse sculpture that the away team finds in the cube. I was getting flashes of like, is this Hannibal or something now? Like, yes. It's so yeah. weird. Yeah. It's
1: very bloody. You know, for for Voyager, there's not a lot of scenes like that. Like, I remember, well, okay, funny story. Um, I was pretty little when this was airing the first time, and my mom was a huge Trek fan, but she would not let me watch these episodes because oh, no. she thought <laughs> she thought Species 8472 would give me nightmares. I was like, Mom! <laughs> like, well, they might have. I, well, I want to watch it, you know, but um, they, they're they pretty, you know, pretty creepy looking. Yeah, um, absolutely. Then once you hear Kess start interpreting their thoughts, then they become even more scary.
0: If only your mom had known that all those bodies were just Playmates toys, Borg action figures <laughs> oh my that were shot. Yeah, uh, the visual effects guy uh, just took them home, glued them together and shot it like in his house and then just uh, comped it into that scene. Last and definitely not least, Scorpion Part 2 introduces the character of Seven of Nine, tertiary adjunct of Unimatrix 01, played by Jerry Ryan. Ryan would play Seven of Nine through the seventh season of Voyager, and she is reprising the role in the Picard series. Her first series regular role on television was the NBC sci-fi series Dark Skies. After Trek, she would become a series regular on the Fox series Boston Public and appear in the 2000 film Dracula 2000, and she would go on to a host of TV roles and guest appearances to this day. She knew nothing about Star Trek before taking on the role of Seven. Uh, The producers gave her Star Trek First Contact to watch after she was cast, and she was told by the producers that her character would be different from the Borg Queen. Like, don't don't use the Borg Queen, uh, Alice Krieg, as your um, base for your performance. So she just assumed that her performance would be silent, like the other Borg drones in the film. And when she got the dialogue, the script, uh, she was surprised that she had a large share of the dialogue, and she was talking all the yeah. time in the episode. So she kind of freaked out, and she went to the producers uh, and asked, like Rick Berman, like what they wanted her character to be like. And she was told that they were looking for Seven to be something of a hybrid between what you think of as the usual Borg and just a regular human character. And she was given a lot of latitude uh, to develop that character and show Seven's journey. Although I thought it was interesting that um, episode director Vinric Colby told Ryan to think of Seven and the Borg as having the bearing of a Prussian general.
1: Ooh, that's interesting.
0: Yeah, that's such a... And he's German himself, so I mean, it makes sense. But like, it's such a an image that you immediately go, oh, that's a great touchstone. Okay, yeah, I, I see what I'm doing here.
1: Yep, that makes sense.
0: The role of Seven was based in part on the Borg Queen, of course, uh, and also on the character of lacutus as embodied by Jean-Luc Picard. And I think it makes sense, the idea that the Borg would occasionally need like an interlocutor to like talk with certain species that they've decided not to assimilate or <laughs> for situations <Not> <laughs> like this. Yeah, where they're like, maybe we need to like get some help or something from these guys.
1: Yeah, I love that they kind of brought that idea back, but then you know it ends up it it turns into a very different scenario for them to deal with than it was with Lucius.
0: Right, and of course um, the the costume. I mean, everybody knows her regular everyday uh, costume, but the costume that she wears um, at the, the, in these episodes uh, was very arduous to to put on. They had to make a, an entire body cast of her, which took like six hours, and glue all these things on and then she had to wear a bald cap and they glued things on that. And I'm just imagining being like a young actress who's done a couple sitcoms <laughs> and now you're coming in and they're just gluing things to your face and it's like, okay. Andy Andy Robinson tells a story um about how he agreed to be Garrick and, you know, didn't know a lot about Star Trek. You know, he was aware of it. But he was he's claustrophobic. So he oh. sat down and they started putting, you know, the neck thing on him and then putting the thing on his forehead and he was like Nope, no, 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 nope. I can't do this. And he had to call his right. agent, and his agent's like, "Look, this could be really good for you. You gotta do this." And so,
1: oh well, I'm glad he suffered through it because you know we we now have Garrick. But yeah, I cannot imagine it would be hot and it would be yeah. stiff and it would be yeah
0: very yeah. uncomfortable. Jerry Ryan had that problem on the set of the Board Cube as well because she's wearing this entire like rubber suit like over her body, and then they're using smoke machines and stuff, and so she's starting to get like tired and kind of faint. But she thinks like, "No, I'm, this is." I'm the newbie here. I got to push through this. And she like fainted. And so now there's like, there's paramedics on the set and she's like, Oh crap. (laughs) I didn't want to be that guy, but I just wanted to get it done.
1: Hazards of working in Star Trek. (laughs) Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, let's talk about the episode itself. I have this theory. Um, I don't think it's anything particularly brilliant, but all Trek shows seem to do a turnaround, you know, in, as the fourth season starts. Um, TNG, you know, we all note that TNG started off pretty rough and started to improve as it went. And then we hit the best of both worlds and you know that you're in for something, something different, you know, and something special. And even DS9, which also had a little bit steeper learning curve, but um, did get really good, gets to the fourth season and they almost, like, repilot the show. They have, like, this feature-length movie, basically, where they introduce Worf, they introduce the Klingons, and we even kind of take a break from the, the the developing conflict of the Dominion. It hangs over everything, but we're going to take the show in a completely new direction. And that's really what happens here. Uh, I did, of course, I didn't uh, talk about <laughs> Enterprise. Hey, Enterprise, you know what? It works, too. Enterprise season four, yep. they kind of wrap up i'm trying to remember exactly where they were but i know the season four they really dig into what the series kind of always should have been which is let's yep. see how the how the federation comes together yeah it's I mean? the
1: story of the federation being formed
0: right so we can one can only imagine what a fourth season of the original series would have looked like maybe they would have really hit their stride
1: <laughs> we can only imagine <laughs> yes
0: uh but anyway uh, and that's kind of where we're at like this is voyager's best of both worlds in a lot of ways it really
1: is yeah and I, you know, I feel like the, once Seven comes into the cast, there's a lot of stuff that just kind of gels and the storylines get really
0: interesting
1: and complex. I mean, I, I could say good things about a lot of different parts of Voyager, but um, I agree. I think there this is definitely a turning point in the show.
0: And it's interesting too, because I already um, liked the character of Jane Away and I liked uh, – the things that she had to deal with this struggle of trying to keep her crew alive and yet trying to keep them all together. And I don't think that a female character has to have like a motherly like role necessarily. But once we introduce seven, I really enjoy the stewardship that she has for that character. You know, it's like you mentioned before, she is a woman, but as a human, she, you know it's like it's like role-playing games she's got like 10 levels of fighter and only two levels of bard you know what i mean or or human in this case and so she really takes on this role of sort of mentoring her you know into her new humanity and when you when you know that they hated each other on set it it makes it even more impressive that (laughs) that you it just never comes out on screen like they're both just like amazing actors apparently
1: yeah, they, they have definite on-screen chemistry yeah. that really forefronts Janeway's, like you said, humanity and emotion and compassion and the, the nurturing aspects of her as a human being yeah. that she does she can't always um, rely on in, in certain situations of command, um, but we get to see it then with Seven, which I think is cool.
0: Yeah, we saw it previously a little bit with uh, Balana, but they kind of drop that you know balana was somebody who didn't feel like she belonged and of course she had these anger issues and we see jane away sort of support her into the role that she eventually takes but now seven kind of comes into that role
1: yeah there's a there's a few moments with harry too where it's it felt kind of you know like okay it's gonna be it's gonna be okay you know like but it it definitely is more pronounced and more heartfelt you know with seven
0: yeah Having to do what Janeway does, um, get her people home and still maintain the values of the Federation—that's such an interesting like dichotomy for me. I think the series, I think it could have gone much farther with it because many times, you know, everything ends in a fairly pat way, as often Trek episodes do. Um, you know, they're essentially violating the Prime Directive with every new system that they pull into. Like they are out there on their own and they're not coming from the Federation as an envoy, they're just like, hey, you don't know who we are, but here we are. Um, Yep. If they were really following the letter of the law of the Prime Directive, they should probably just find an uninhabited planet, set up camp, uh, set Voyager to self destruct and just live out their lives in the Delta Quadrant?
1: Yeah, and that's like pretty much Chicote's main argument for like a long time. <laughs> you know, he's like, <laughs> Seriously, let's just find a planet already, you know? Yeah. Although I don't know if that's really motivated by Prime Directive. I think it's more just he wants to settle down and stop racing around space, but um yeah, we we really do kind of get that idea that like, well, we're kind of out here by ourselves. <laughs> Although she still she still definitely wants to preserve a lot of the principles yeah. of the Federation at least um morally speaking. Um what's the what's the name of the episode where she runs into another uh, Federation ship that got pulled by the caretaker and they're definitely not acting morally cuz they're using those creatures um to to get home faster.
0: I don't remember the name of the episode. But... I don't either. It's Captain Ransom.
1: Yeah, but then we get the we get the um sort of the mirror image of here's what could have happened if they had just abandoned oh, any yeah. principles and just did what was best for them and and were very, you know, sort of like consequentialist self-motivated
0: type. And it's a completely inverted thing from uh like say Captain Kirk who I think has a lot of similarities with Janeway um, in the way that they kind of approach things Uh, in that Captain Kirk is always like leaving the base to go put out the fire. Like, what's wrong with these colonists? What's with what's this trade dispute? But Janeway and crew are complete strangers in here so they can pull into an area and go, wow, we don't like what's going on here, but. I don't, can we do anything to change it at all? Maybe you just have to fly (laughs) away. Wow. We found a planet where to punish people, they, um, you know, implant the memories of what they did. (laughs) Like when that thing where Tom Paris apparently killed a guy, right? Yes. Uh, And it's horrible and it's so violating, but they're like, well, just grab Tom and we got to go. There's nothing we can really do. Right. I love the idea too of, um, you mentioned Chakotay being like, do we have to do this? I, I like that character in Star Trek and you don't see it a lot because it kind of like attacks the premise, but somebody like McCoy, who's like, yes, I don't want to be out here. <laughs> like, <laughs> right.
2: Why like, are we out here on. in space all
0: the time? Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Why do we got to do this? Yeah. I, I really got the McCoy vibe um, from Chakotay in his best moments, you know, <laughs> like, I think that's what a first officer really should be like. Should we really be doing this? Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but when the show's at its best, like it's finding this synthesis of the principles of Starfleet, you know, do good, but also we're going home. Like, no matter what, we're going to see our loved ones again. I'm going to see my dog. Like, I'm going to get these people home. They're relying on me.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that's a very, you know very high bar for her to set because it seems almost impossible at the outset. Like realistically, they're not going to live to see it. And yet they, they just keep trying hard enough and Q gets involved and, you know, right, they, right. They, eventually, they eventually make it.
0: Yeah. It, they, we even get kind of a chance uh, to maybe retire uh, when they discover the Northwest passage, because they're like, yep. Oh, this is great. And then, Oh no, there's like, it's full of ships and stuff. Yep. And the like, I don't know, maybe we just, find a planet. I guess maybe we quit. I don't want to quit, but I mean, maybe that's the right decision.
1: Right. Cause they've, they found this, what seems to be like, uh, an option that's going to actually help them. And then, you know, not even that's going to work now. So I can see how it'd be very, very daunting to just kind of keep going through, through all of this hostile territory, you know, on and on and on, but, yeah, uh, they have a lot of awesome adventures on the way.
0: Yeah. Well, they certainly do. Um, I have a question. We we see in the episode uh, that the Borg uh, have a planet. You know, we see like a Borg world, kind of like we do see in um, First Contact, and it gets you know blown up by um, (laughs) in that cool scene where we already know that these bio ships are tough, but then they're like Power Rangers form up and then they (laughs) blow up the planet. (laughs) But my question is, what do the Borg even do with a planet? Like, do you need? They're on these ships. I've always thought that they take territory, but they don't have to hold it necessarily.
1: You know, it seems like for the Borg to be successful, they just have to be omnipresent.
0: Just make you Borg.
1: Yes, they want to make every speck of existence borg, and so it would make sense, sort of that their philosophy of domination and conquest would extend to planets. I can almost picture them like dropping off a shipload of Borg drones and being like okay your your mission is just to populate the planet." oh, they just could." So we- we can call it ours,
0: they could fire them off, like give them rockets and like shoot them off to planets, yes. just like one borg and just like take over that planet, yes. yeah, like the coronavirus doesn't have to like move into my apartment, it just has to get me sick, and then I'll get yes. other people sick, so yes,
1: and then they'll just borgify the whole planet, and then you know then it's theirs, and then eventually the whole the whole world is you know, that there was some themes similar to that in Discovery with um, with other, you know, entities doing that. But right. um, it's, it's a terrifying notion to think of something just kind of like taking over and homogenizing, you know, and wiping out cultures and things like that. But,
0: and yeah, these episodes deal with the differences between uh, having that homogenization and having individuality. I always wondered, like, what their goal is i mean obviously their goal is to expand to add their your individualness to our own or whatever but it's like is there some work that they're doing say that they took over the whole galaxy andromeda next like what's (laughs) what's their plan and i i know it's like um it's like the joker it's like all these different things like you never don't tell us the origin it doesn't matter just let us enjoy the cool thing but like somebody someday maybe could like write an origin of like how the Borg got to be this way. Like, why are they stuck in this mode?
1: Yeah, I think um the, the moment in Voyager that really clicked that for me and it made me see the Borg a little different is when they encounter the Omega particle mm. and Seven worships it like it's yeah. a deity <laughs> yeah. because she's chasing perfection. Yeah. And so that made me go, Oh, the Borg are a race of perfectionists that have, you know, very uh they've applied it in a in a very unethical way their their search for perfection um but i can see where they would never be satisfied with you know the state of their existence they think that adding more things and more things and more things onto themselves is somehow going to make them this unreachable you know level of perfect yeah. um, and that's that's both scary but also i don't know kind of sad a little bit oh, to think about definitely
0: if they're you after we, all we have to do is show them a picture of baby yoda if they're looking for yeah. perfection, <laughs> and then they'll just be like oh we did it
1: baby yoda would break the collective it just they,
0: <laughs> that's when they wanted to put that uh, picture in in hugh's head and kill them all that's what it was baby yoda um they
1: would just be like no sorry we can't assimilate the cuteness <laughs>
0: <laughs> Your cuteness cannot be assimilated. You'd think that if they understand efficiency, they must know that you can get too big. You know what I mean? Like, like, it's like the Roman Empire. They were all about efficiency, but at some point it was like, oh, we got too big.
1: You would think so. Um, and have, it they it haven't hit that point like... yet. Yeah, maybe not. I mean they, they do seem to understand that they need like hubs, you know, like they, they yeah. Voyager encounters these little pockets of, of Borg, you know, bases where they they kind of understand that they have to keep some consolidation or density to their power. Yeah. Um, but it seems like they don't uh, they they don't seem to worry that much about like the expendability of You know, drones—they're—they're kind of raw resources to them, which sounds really heartless to say. But um, if they do spread themselves too thin, like it's not the end of the world. They're not viewing these as individual lives that are being lost. um, You know, if—if they risk
0: them unnecessarily. What do you think about the idea of a a Borg queen?
1: Uh, I love her as a character. I think she's an excellent um, villain. I think it makes sense that there has to be some sort of directing influence to manage a an intelligence that is that vast
2: mm-hmm. and that
1: that that has that many moving pieces there has to be an executive function of of some kind whether it's in a program or in a in a brain you got to have something that's calling the shots um so it it makes sense that that would be there um, and i like for the most part what they did with her character there's there's some kind of weird scenes with her but for the most part I think she's a cool character
0: yeah I guess that it would make I mean we were questioning what is this eternal thirst uh, by the Borg for more resources and more assimilation and if you think about it as um, at the heart of it there is as portrayed in First first Contact this just evil uh, person who just doesn't care and is just greedy if she's sort of that's the directive of the Borg I guess I can understand It would be Um,
1: really interesting to know, like you said, did she, is she part of the origination of, of the collective or did she kind of arise out of it, you know, as their chosen
0: leader? Yeah. But like Alice Kirschman, don't listen to this. We don't give us the origin of the Borg story. We don't, it doesn't matter. (laughs) We don't need that. (laughs) Right. Uh, something that's tough in writing Trek episodes is that it's not just like, you know, the Roddenberry idea that there's no conflict in the future, but all the characters are so perfect and so well adjusted. There's often there's nowhere to go with them.
1: DS9 shakes that up quite a bit. Um, oh, we
0: start. Everybody's broken. <laughs> we start. Everybody yeah. has a problem already. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
1: Um, at Voyager, you know, I think it's a lot more subtle. Like, you know, B'Elanna's sort of internal conflicts come out as we go. Um,
0: Tom's an ex-con.
1: And Tom's an ex-con um, <laughs> and doesn't really know how to like care about other people at first, you yeah. know, and Harry's insecure, but, but they are sort of, like you said, sort of subtle. They're, they're still seemingly, Uh, you know, citizens who can who can function in a group, even the Maquis, who were sort of, I guess, outlaws uh, in the eyes of the Federation, are able to hop onto the starship and, and, you know, assimilate relatively quickly. I I know it wasn't all, you know, roses at first, but
0: even Neelix is really nice. Like he could have been a total jerk. (laughs) And when they go into his backstory, they talk. He's like, well, I did this and I'm not proud of it. But it's like, yeah, but you're the guy that makes lunch for everybody. Like everybody loves you
1: you're so sweet you know we feel for him and even you know you know Tuvok like you said is maybe the more stoic character in this one but they show they let him have moments of emotion and moral quandary and stuff yeah. so it's yeah they're 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 people but they maybe are are part of this United Federation of Planets because they have certain ideals that um you know make them able to function better together as as individuals
0: yeah i think that it's telling that all the tos movies and even some of the tng ones are about getting old and about your perceptions changing
1: Ooh, that's interesting yeah rarely do we
0: just jump in and go it's another adventure it's always like oh yeah it's not i'm older now and i realize that some things aren't as important as i thought and other things are
1: Yes. And their their perspective of their career usually shifts, you know, a little yeah. bit or or their understanding of the of the universe.
0: Uh, speaking of people that are too nice, uh, Kess is the two nicest. <laughs> and maybe <laughs> maybe she had to go for that reason. Um, not to mention that she gets like Jean Grey powers and uh, can fix every problem. But it's Kess is just she just feels like this kind of unrealized um Potential, um, ironically, as her character is becoming like completely realized as a person. And so I kind of wonder where we could have gone if there was more for her, uh, more grist for the mill, like going forward.
1: Yeah, I really was excited by her character in the in the pilot because she's kind of this revolutionary, you know, who throws off the yoke of, you know, oppressive thought or whatever from her from her society and decides, you know, what, I'm just going to like leave my home (laughs) and go off with these strangers (laughs) forever, which is pretty ballsy. Like, you know, Um, but then I think, like you said, she kind of almost becomes more withdrawn and. And timid as as we go on uh, through the series, and I really wanted to see that that sort of fire come out a little bit more. Um, obviously, it comes out literally, like you said, when she figures out her powers. But right. uh, but in a metaphorical way of her character development, that would have been interesting to see that you know mature.
0: Yes, but um, unrealized potential uh, that it may be. Uh, We swap her for Seven of Nine, who I think becomes a um, much richer and more important character. And I I love how you mentioned it earlier. They talk about pulling the plug on her. And even in this moment where she was, you know, the vanguard of this enemy that wants to totally destroy them and destroy their individuality, they're still debating her consent. Do you know what I mean? Like she's laying in sick bay, yes. and they're like, "We need to take this stuff out of her for her to keep living." And she's like, "Well, yes. we don't have her consent to do that, both medically and just from a perspective of personhood. Like we're definitely we're the good guys, you know what I mean? Or at least it's good that they're thinking about that. And then you think yes. about her character as somebody who, and I, you know, I think consent's really important, but. She's kind of mind controlled, isn't she? Like, she's a cult member. Like, could she even give her consent? You know, we see in the next episode, The Gift, that she is literally fighting against. Like, she's basically just saying, let me die. And they're like, well, there, there's no way we're just going to let you die. Mm-hmm. Um, which, something. okay, listen up, Alice Kurtzman, this time. <laughs> uh, suicide is something that we talk about sometimes on this show and like the right to make choices about your own life. And you'd think that like the Federation and Starfleet is this nurturing uh, force that wants to um, everybody to have their best life. But you know, this is something that even Voyager has tackled in its own way with um, death wish uh, seeing uh, the other Q wanting, wanting to die. I-, I wonder if there's a future or a scenario in which Janeway and the doctor just say, well, okay, that's what she wants. And then we just sort of let her slip away.
1: You know, that is an issue that came up as, as I rewatched this episode, because, you know, it's, it's nice to hear them consider consent, but it's hard for me, at least to listen to seven very clearly articulate her desires in this matter and them to kind of go against them. I mean, she's basically telling them that she would rather be dead than you know revert back to humanity and and so then you get into this ethical uh dilemma of like you said does she have the capacity to make a decision that is in her own best interest this is very similar to some of the uh ethical cases that my debate club is looking at right now you know as far as like should children for example have the right to decide their own medical Uh, treatment, you know, if a child Mm -hmm. has cancer, should they be able to say yes or no to chemotherapy? You know, at what age are they, are they allowed to make that call? Mm. Um, so that's, I mean, seven isn't a child, but in a lot of ways, you know, when she's first disconnected from the collective, she has a lot of those same, uh, sort of, you know, like you said, difficulties becoming an individual.
0: Yeah. There's, I mean, deprogramming that has to go on with her, um, basically, um, Just coming out of the collective. Starfleet captains have to make a lot of tough choices and Janeway has her share, but this almost feels to me, it doesn't get the same sort of fanfare, but like an anti-Tuvix decision. You know, Janeway makes the decision that she does with Tuvix, which is basically you're going to die. And with Seven, she makes the decision you're going to live.
1: Yes. And it's interesting that both of them were moving them back toward individuality, mm. you know, and I don't know if that's her personal, like, moral constitution um, that led her that way or if that's a reflection of the values of the Federation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but that's, yeah, that's an interesting parallel.
0: Well, that's, let's talk about uh, individuality or the lack thereof. Uh, in this episode, Janeway does... The possibly unthinkable, and makes a, a deal with uh, with her personal devil, the Borg. Yeah. Um, but isn't she in some way achieving what the Federation would want—cooperation? If John Luke Picard yeah. had rolled up to the Borg in uh, Hide and Q* or whatever that episode was, and was like, "Hey, um, let's have a technological exchange. Let's be friends," and the Borg <laughs> are like, "Sure," um, then that would be great. Of course, that's not what happened. Yeah.
1: I mean, on the surface, this looks like a, a major diplomatic win. I mean, this yeah, is, yeah. this is getting, you know, two, two people or two uh, entities that hate each other to work together on a, on a mutually beneficial project. Yeah. However, it's, it becomes pretty obvious that the Borg are in this for personal gain and not for true diplomatic uh, col- collaboration. Yeah. And obviously they, they, pull the rug and and renege as soon as they get the chance to on, yeah. on the deal you know although they do feel seven does express that that they felt like you know chakotay violated the terms of the agreement
0: first that's so true that makes, yeah, yeah. She, I mean, she does say in later episodes you know that she's not accustomed to deception or whatever she sort of takes people you know at, at their at their word the borg but yeah chakotay did screw them over first
1: Yes. So, you know, it's, can there, can there be, you know, lasting accord? I tend to want to think at least that there's always hope for peace between any two warring entities, you know, if, if uh, you can have reasoning and, and mutual respect prevail. Um, So I'd like to think that, yes, there could be, you know, there could be a, a truce somehow, but then when you look at the, the aims of the Borg um, that are very much to, you know, literally genocide every, <laughs> every group of, of beings in existence and so then it's hard to figure out, OK, well, how does that coexist yeah. with with anything
0: else? I'm sure that we're just basically, you know, talking about what's going to happen in Picard. I mean, I'd have to imagine that. 20, 30 years later or whatever it is, uh, we can't have the Borg just floating around out there, right? At some point, they stop their expansion or some kind of truce is made. You know, we see uh, recovered um, Borg characters uh, that are going to appear on the show. And so there's going to some kind of accord or something is going to have to happen. Or even like in the future of Discovery in the 32nd century or whatever, just seeing that the entire galaxy isn't Borg, uh, they must be stopped somehow,
1: Right, or contained. Or contained, you know? yeah. <laughs> Somehow, um, I'm really, this This is just my personal hope, but I'm really holding out hope that Hugh is going to play a major role in that. Yeah. Because I loved him as a character in TNG, and uh, I love the idea that the Borg could themselves decide to change their own society, but still be Borg. Right. I don't know, That's that's a fascinating concept.
0: In every revolution there's one Borg. Yes, yes. (laughs) Um, I like the Borg because they're uh, like a haunted house in space and, uh, (laughs) you know, full of zombies. And uh, we get a little bit of that on Voyager. We get Borgager a little bit.
1: Yes, we do. They they borgify the one of the cargo bays so that so that seven can work out of it. And that always makes me nervous. You know, it's like, okay, Voyager Voyager has like its neuro bioneural gel packs and it's it's a very connected, almost living ship. Yeah. And so to see them like start plugging all of this Borg technology into it, it's like, oh no, you're gonna
0: gets contaminated.
1: Yes. It's I'm I'm always concerned about the ship. don't hurt the sip.
0: <laughs> oh, it'll be fine. It's uh, different parts of it are in different timelines and there's two of it. And it's, yeah, it's always fine. Uh, but those gel packs are always getting sick though. Uh, yes. There's a, <laughs> there's a, a a question I think, or there's an irony in Seven's criticism of humanity and um, that they're inefficient uh, because they uh, disagree with each other and everybody gets to, you know, sound off and make their own opinion And I don't know what book she's reading from, but isn't that how collectivism works? Like, doesn't everybody (laughs) sort of get to contribute something in, in some way?
1: yeah I think that's definitely part of it, although uh, I think there's the idea that you're contributing to the greater good yeah. so you're you're contributing to a common goal um so to speak but i I agree with that um irony because ultimately it's it's the idea of individualism that you know thwarts her attempts <laughs> to
2: like, yeah
1: <laughs> to take the ship yeah. so um it, it her prophecy turns up being. It turns out to not be true.
0: There's a hypocrisy too, I think, in what the Borg talks about, because they always talk about how it's going to be better for people after they assimilate them and, and that sort of thing. Um, I guess maybe you have to understand you're being false to be a hypocrite, or I don't know, maybe not. But there's there's that value that Starfleet has in the actual opinion. You know, the Borg, If if some Borg got sick, the Borg would have no hesitation at all to just shoot them out of a cannon or whatever and just cut off something and they would never try to save them and so there there's a difference there and i like the fact that even starfleet when they when they find the borg graveyard they're like scanning for survivors and i started to think would they provide aid if there if there were survivors like if there were hurt borg like would they be obligated to help them would they even do that
1: Mm, that's that's a tough one, because, you know, it seems like Jane May really wanted to help Seven, but that's only because they were <laughs> responsible for what happened to her. And the nine other guys so, that
0: Chakotay f- blew out the airlock.
1: Yeah. That was Each one of them could have been
0: a seven. Yeah.
1: Right. Correct. Yeah. It really does seem like um, the Borg are operating on a utilitarian philosophy of the, the end justifies the means no matter what we have to do to get there, no matter how many drones you know or anything else that's in the way just mow it down whereas the the federation is is more looking at it from a kantian perspective of you can't use people just to obtain your your desired outcome that's that's ethically wrong
0: oh boy there's a trolley problem discussion coming up in this show's future i think You definitely
1: could have a trolley utilitarianism. problem. Utilitarianism. <laughs> somebody <laughs> dropped
0: Kant on us. Here we go. Let's talk about uh, Chakotay's decision, which he picks the other side of the track as far as the trolley problem goes and is like, yeah, okay, Jane, I'll, I'll do whatever I have to. Is she asleep? blow him out the airlock, let's do this. Like he immediately, he even like, I, you know, I trust him, like I like him as a character. I think that he has the crew's best interest at heart, but he doesn't even think about it as much as Janeway does. He's just like, all right, cut it off.
1: Yeah, he really does seem to be in the camp of let's protect our own, you yeah, know, yeah. like let's do what is best for us right now. And it's more of a of an us versus them kind of thing. And I think Janeway is looking at them as a, as a valuable tool that shouldn't just be Blown out the airlock.
0: Right. And also, maybe as beings whose lives, tortured as they are, we should maybe respect. Yeah. Yeah. And I like how when she, it's a little convenient that she gets a big bonk on the Cabeza and then (laughs) two acts later she's, you know, she's fine again. But like, I like how she's like really mad when she comes back. And she probably doesn't have the right to be mad, just in terms of, like, the chain of command. No. She did give a standing order, but she wa- they didn't know if she's going to wake up. And so, you know. Yeah. He, I'm he, pretty he,
1: sure he has the right to make yeah, the he, he, tactical call. Sure.
0: He played it the way that he thought it should go. Uh, and, of course, we plant this kind of seed of distrust that'll be worked on a little bit as the show goes forward. Apparently, they were really... Uh, trying to work this. And another thing that um, Rick Colby, the director, wanted to push was this idea uh, of this tension between them, you know, having a commander be disabled and then having the, the second do something else. And and just and playing this uh, sort of chain of command, this military structure against the kind of relationship and, and, and friendship and trust that they have between each other.
1: I like um when Star Trek tackles uh character relationship issues because I think it it really humanizes what what can end up being uh character stereotypes otherwise um but it like you said earlier um it, it's uncomfortable to see them against each other because they just seem to work so well together most of the time that it's like no stop stop yelling at each other
2: yeah. <laughs> you're, yeah, right.
1: you're on the same side here you know yeah. but it's They both do have good points, you know, and so it, I think it's a realistic sort of a conflict that they set up in these episodes.
0: Yeah. and This is the disadvantage, of course, of individuality is that uh, one person, the leader, can get knocked out and then somebody else makes a different decision.
1: Yes. As, you know, every governmental system in the world knows, like, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you change power and suddenly everything can change. And it's,
0: yeah. But, of course, they use it to their advantage again in a great way at the end of the episode where... Uh, she, Janeway maybe tells a little lie and says that she sent Chakotay to the brig yep. uh, but as soon as Seven uh, pulls her trap card uh, then it's Janeway's trap card and we go for Scorpion
1: yes I love that she used that as the code word like Janeway to Chakotay right.
2: Scorpion you yeah know?
0: <laughs> I'm mad at you and you disobeyed me but I still you know I listen and I, I hear the things that my subordinates say and I remember you told me about the Scorpion thing
1: Yes, it's really genius.
0: Uh, We probably should get to wrap up here. We're running out of time. But uh, Species 8472 is crazy. It's just a crazy, very non-Trek idea. And every alien they find is some guy with chewing gum on his his face, you know. But, like, just having this crazy CGI alien, which, you know, we come to learn uh, has, like, five different sexes. And they're telepathic. And they're from a dimension that they call it fluidic space. But fluid is matter. So it's not even space. It's just fluid, basically. Yes, it's just matter. Yeah, yeah. They're just so, I don't know, like a lot of people, um, a lot of people criticize some of the decisions that Brandon Braga made uh, creatively. But I just think that that's just such a weird breath of weird, fresh air in the Star Trek universe.
1: Well, I agree. And I think they had a tall order to find something that could out out weird the board yeah you know and and i think they did it here um they also stand out as different just because they really do seem bent on just pure destruction you know the weak will perish or whatever (laughs) they say like they don't seem to have any redeeming democratic qualities yeah at all but they do have a very cool theme song if you notice in the episode Every time they show up, they've got this really cool little little
0: jingle that plays. I wonder if you could just, like, telepathy the Borg. Is there something about them having so many united minds or thinking so differently that would keep you from just, you know, doing, like, a mental whammy on them if they're such powerful telepaths or have such power, uh, mental powers?
1: That would be interesting, like, mind melding with that many minds, Or, you like, know? yeah,
0: control the queen. Maybe you control the collective.
1: Oh, wow. That would be, that would be like the ultimate coup if they could do that.
0: It's probably in a tie-in novel somewhere. Yes, I'm quite sure. There's that nothing that is, new in the Star that Trek that has Extended been thought Universe. Of before. <laughs> yeah. I think we probably talked about this uh, when you were on the show to talk about education, but the holodeck, what a what a teaching tool. And if you could put some kid in Da Vinci's workshop. Oh, gosh. What a substitute teacher.
1: That would be so amazing. I actually wrote an article about this for um, star trek com and just tried to imagine how it would revolutionize reading, yeah. because, you know my we do we spend a lot of time trying to get kids interested in reading and what if I could just throw them into their book you know, (laughs) for for a chapter and they could actually interact with the characters for a while I think it would be really great but you know also talk about hands on learning it would be great and then of course you know my teacher brain is suddenly like okay but what about you know like what if they get hurt and how do you keep them from like breaking (laughs) breaking the holodeck sure right. there's a lot of other considerations but that is one one piece of Trek technology that I do hope eventually gets, gets invented.
0: Kids meet professor Moriarty.
1: Yes. Oh gosh. No, <laughs> <laughs> they will team up with him.
0: <laughs> yeah. I love you. Oh my God. I love how, uh, all these, uh, I guess like what you do in the holodeck is your business, but all these powerful characters like kept Picard and, um, and Cisco and Janeway, they all want to go on the holodeck and do these kind of mundane things. Like Picard wants to be this gumshoe that people are always beating up and shooting. And Cisco just wants to play baseball and Janeway wants to be a governess or something. (laughs) Like she's always (laughs) doing this. I love
1: that they all have their, you know, like their personal fantasies that like they, they have places that they would actually rather be than on the starship enterprise, you know, because like for us, like, okay, if you, if you, you're gonna take me somewhere. That's where I want to be, you know. But for them, it's it's cool to get to look into their wishes and their what they find interesting as entertainment narrative, and, and it's a, always different. Yeah,
0: and a distinct lack of responsibility too.
1: Yes, yes. Kind of like to, I just want to play this through and just you know be able to to not really think, which granted like as a captain they would be they would be doing intensive decision making all day long so i could see why they would want to escape
0: Oh that yeah way. it's just chilling out if they're just playing video games and just hanging out yeah Yeah <laughs> Well uh let's talk my space dad can beat up your space dad who's your favorite captain and why
1: Oh definitely Janeway um I love her tenacity. I love her leadership style. I love that she's intensely passionate and compassionate Mm -hmm. and cares about all life. And this is a great episode that we're talking about here to exemplify that. Um, She was a great role model for me uh, when I was growing up. And I also just find it fun to watch her uh, in in her adventures. But I have an affinity for all of the captains in some way, shape, or form. But Janeway is, is definitely my captain.
0: I feel like you really get a sense of her as a person as well. I know that a detachment from... Picard was part of the conception of the character early on like he was supposed to be this weird you know kind of dried up guy that didn't like kids and you know was kind of <laughs> formal and then later on of course we see you know his inner life but you immediately you get that right away with Jane away and you already think of her as a person as well as a leader and a captain and yeah that's something that I really like about her
1: yeah definitely because I
0: love coffee too so
1: um, you know, I don't. I do not drink coffee, huh. which I, everybody thinks I'm crazy for that, but I enjoy watching her drink <laughs> sure. her coffee. Yeah, yeah. So that works.
0: <laughs> well, don't ever start, kid. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I know, right?
0: <laughs> well, now that we've reached the end of the show, you'll receive a promotion to the rank of ensign. What department on the ship do you work in?
1: I think I am going to work in communications Interesting, because I enjoy languages and I enjoy, uh, you know, communication and uh, helping people understand each other.
0: So actual, um, the process of communications, not necessarily um, radio equipment or something like that.
1: Oh, yeah. You're going to want somebody else to run the equipment. <laughs> <laughs> I will help uh, mediate and negotiate and, uh, you know, help help parse out some meaning for folks.
0: It's something that we don't see a lot, and I guess I wouldn't want Trek to change. But whatever planet they crash on in the Delta Quadrant, they immediately walk up to somebody. Well, how's it going? Oh, pretty good. Like they can understand them <laughs> thanks to the universal <laughs> translator. And it's either I understand that it's a lubrication to make the story go, but they're really when you think about it from a linguistics perspective, it really makes language seem like oh, I guess it's not all that complicated. <laughs> We've only got like. 8,000 different languages or whatever on earth, but uh, apparently you can find the right programmer or app or something and it just takes care of that
1: most of the time i mean overwhelmingly that is true and then we get darmok and yeah. suddenly the universal translator is like wait what <laughs> i don't understand the metaphors you know yeah so it's cool to to see the technology reach a breaking point there where it's just like nah sorry i can't, <laughs> can't <do this." laughs>
0: i just saw uh, a episode of voyager i think in the 4th season where chicote crash lands on a planet and it's like a vietnam metaphor like he runs into these guys who are in the woods with like m16s and the way that they talk is it reminds me of firefly in that they use these kind of archaic terms for things so they're like when the lights come over the trunks or whatever and it gets really annoying and i don't like that episode very much but (laughs) but i guess that's another example of the translator not quite getting getting what's going on
1: Yes, and there's so many, you know, questions about um, cultural context, you know, yeah. and and how does the universal translator know enough about these alien races to contextualize what they're saying so that it comes through in a way that, you know, the the, the Starfleet folks can really truly comprehend what they mean. But Trek has a lot of episodes where they ask those questions, like in Ensigns of Command, um, Picard's trying to negotiate with the Shelyak and like the they, translator's working, but like they're just not getting anywhere um, with the communications. And so they have this really cool little conversation with Troy about how how do you actually access the meaning behind language? And I find episodes like that really fascinating.
0: It's the implicature subroutine in the universal translator. It just takes care of everything.
1: Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, that would be that would be great if it could just like snap its fingers and make every, everybody understand each other perfectly. If they
0: really dug into it, would it make like lying impossible or would it make uh, being wow. ironic impossible? Yeah,
1: that would that's very interesting or metaphor or uh, euphemism or anything sure. like that.
0: Or yeah, or slang profanity.
1: Wow. That's super interesting.
0: Well, too bad we're out of time.
1: Yeah, too bad. That's like a whole episode
2: in
0: itself. (laughs) Absolutely. We'll have to have you back for that one. Awesome. And to Fitzpatrick, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online?
2: You
1: can find me at my website at kellyfitzpatrick.com and on Twitter at Kelly Great.
0: Thanks again for joining me.
1: Thank you so much,
0: Aaron. We're signing off to the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed.
1: Your Honor, a courtroom is a crucible. In it we burn away irrelevancies until we are left with a pure product, the truth for all time.
0: Oh man, this is so intense. Data is on trial for his I life. I know. This episode, The Measure of a Man, is based on the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision of 1857. And every week on Backtracking, we take a look at the real world events that inspired classic Star Trek episodes. Sorry. Shut up! Shh. Who are you? We're the hosts of Backtracking. I'm Caliban. You will both be taken to the brig and from there to the nearest starbase, where you will answer charges for what you have done. And I'm Gooey Fame. This is not a game. This is life and death. You can follow us on Twitter. Backtracking is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You,
2: go f*** yourself.